Hi, thanks for joining us. We're taking our Bibles and going to Numbers chapter 7. Numbers chapter 7 this morning in our study on the wilderness wanderings, the book of Numbers. I have a question for you. When you hear the word Hanukkah, what do you think of? If you're like most of us, we probably think of the fact that Hanukkah, as some people have said, is the festival of lights. Instead of one day of presents, there's eight crazy nights. That's probably ingrained in some of your head. We look at Hanukkah sometimes as the Jewish replacement to Christmas, but it's so much more than that. In fact, if you understand the history of Hanukkah, you'll learn that it was not just based around the menorah, though the menorah is the symbol of it because of the supposed miracle of Hanukkah. But what you will find if you do the study, it's resulted because of this individual named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was a, what is called a Seleucider, a Greek uh, Syrian king. And he was just north of Israel and he went down into Israel and he captured, took, took hold of Israel. And this took place during that intertestamental time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what Antiochus did was he actually went into the temple, erected an altar of Zeus, made it a temple to Zeus. He took pigs and desecrated the altars and slayed them on the altars. And Jewish, uh, Jewish worship was no longer kosher. It wasn't, it wasn't sacred anymore. He had desecrated the temple. And so there were a number of individuals, uh, the Maccabees, who started a guerrilla warfare campaign against these individuals, against Antiochus. And what they did was they worked their way through and were able to eventually gain their independence from Greek for, for a short period of time during that uh, intertestamental period. As they pushed him out, they went to rededicate the temple. And as they rededicated the temple, they took time to, to make it sacred again so that they would be able to to happen. Well, the word Hanukkah actually means dedication. And so that's why this is about Hanukkah. It, it celebrates the rededication of the temple. It allowed them during this time period to be able to bring sacrifices and worship once again in God's holy sanctuary in the temple. And so Hanukkah occurred as a dedication. Well, what's interesting is when we get to number seven, the word Hanukkah appears for the first times in the Bible. And there's only eight times that that word is used in the Old Testament. Four of them are used here in Numbers chapter seven. It's the Hanukkah or the dedication of the altar. And as the altar is being dedicated, notice down in verse number 10, it talks about, and the princes offered for dedication, for dedicating of the altar, the Hanukkah of the altar. Verse 11, at the very end of it, it says the same thing. For the Hanukkah, the dedicating of the altar. Verse 84, verse 88. All highlight that. So this, this passage in number 7 centers around the dedication of the altar, the consecration of the tabernacle, the anointing of all of the instruments, and how the people responded to that joyous and glorious day in their history. The altar that's talked about here, it's not the golden altar of the tabernacle, but it is the bronze altar in the courtyard, the brazen altar, the one in which the, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings and the sin and trespass offerings were brought to. The altar here was, it was central to corporate worship. This was the place. Yes, the, the tabernacle as a whole was the center of the camp. And the Holy of Holies, extremely the most important place. But the center of worship for the individuals was at this brazen altar. 
This was where the Jewish man would bring his sacrifice. This is where they would, they would come to worship God. This was the place where people would bring that sacrifice and they would watch as the smoke rises up in divine acceptance, knowing that God has forgiven their sins, knowing that God has reconciled with them, knowing that their sins have been covered. So this altar was extremely important. It was, it was the furthest point in which most Jews would be able to enter into the tabernacle. The priests went beyond that. They went into the holy place. The, the, the common lay Jew would walk into the brazen altar, and that is where their sacrifices were given. It was a perpetual reminder. There was smoke always going up. People were constantly seeing it. When they would go there, they would, they would see the smoke. They would know what was happening. It was that reminder of man's sinfulness, God's holiness, and what God's expectations were. That in order to approach God, there had to be a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice that took the place, that covered man's sins because as sinful man, we are not able to enter into the presence of a holy God without the covering of blood. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus Christ has offered us, what he has done for many of us in covering our sins so that we have the ability to enter before the presence of God because Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, the only way to enter before God. They had this beautiful picture with the altar and they would see it on that constant reminder. So this altar was an important aspect, dynamic of their worship to God. Now, when we get to chapter 7 here, chapter 7 is going to show the response of the people to this most sacred day, to the day that the altar is going to be dedicated, to the day that the tabernacle is going to be anointed and consecrated and dedicated. So number 7 shows how they're going to respond to that day. Now, look in Numbers chapter 7 and verse number 1. Number 7, verse number 1, has here... A, uh, a reminder, a marker that's going to help us understand when this take place. You'll notice it said, on the day that Moses had fully set up the tabernacle and had anointed it and sanctified it, and all the instruments thereof, both the altar and all the vessels thereof, and had anointed them and sanctified them. So we get this historical marker to tell us when this took place. This offering, this whole chapter 7, is going to take place on the day that the tabernacle was completed, on that special and most holy day of the, for the Jews. Now, there's a problem, or a potential problem. Exodus chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, if you want to turn over there in your Bibles, Exodus chapter 40 is going to give us a little bit more background as to what happens on that day and what that day is. Notice in verse number 2, it's more about the time period. On the first day of the first month, shall thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So God tells Moses on the first day of the first month, it's going to be understood because of the chronology of Exodus in the second year. Okay, so first day, first month. And we know that by the end of Exodus 40, verse number 33, it says, and he reared up the court on that day, the round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging court. So Moses finished the work on that first day of the first month of the second year. Now, if you keep going in our journey, go to Numbers chapter 1. Numbers chapter 1, before we get to number 7, to help us understand a little bit of what's happening. Numbers chapter 1, 
And if you look at verse number one, notice what it says. It says that the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month in the second year. So Numbers chapter 1 happens on the first day of the second month, one month later than when the tabernacle was dedicated, when it was consecrated, when the altar was erected and anointed, when all of that took place. So there seems to be, when we get to Numbers chapter 7, there is a chronological issue. Numbers 7 does not take place in a specific chronology in the book of Numbers. It actually takes place one month prior to when the book of Numbers, when, when God told Moses to go take a census of the people. So it starts one month prior to Numbers chapter 1. Why, why is it chronologically out of order? Why, did, why, why not put it at the end of Exodus? Why not put it at the beginning of Numbers? Why does Moses, in, under the inspiration of God, put it here? In Numbers chapter 7. We have to remember that when the authors write, they don't always write to give simply a chronological or a historical accounting of all that happened. They write with a literary purpose. They want us to understand what is happening and what their purpose in writing to us is. So look at the context quickly. We've been doing this. There is a literary reason he's done this. We looked at chapter 5 that the camp is holy. Right? Remember that? They're separated from sin. Chapter 6, the first part, that the people are consecrated to God, that they are separated to God, separated from sin, separated to God. And how did Numbers chapter 6 end? It ended with the Lord blessing, God blessing his people. And he says, I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to care for you. I will be there for you. And number 7 then flows out of that. What was their response to God blessing his righteous people? How did the people react to God's blessings? They gave. Look in verse number two. The princes of Israel, the heads of the house of their fathers, who were the princes of the tribes, were over them. And that were numbered. It's the ones who helped over the numbering. They were the same ones earlier in chapter two. They offered. And what did they offer? What did they give? And they brought their offering before the Lord. Six wagons, 12 oxen, a waxen, a, a wagon for, for two. A waxen is an oxen and a wagon put together. It's a waxen. Uh, a wagon uh, for two of the princes and for each one an ox. And they brought them before the tabernacle. Look, look at what happens. These offerings are going to be given spontaneously. It's not a divine decree from God to say, bring me this. These individuals, as a representation of the people of God, they bring spontaneously to help with the tabernacle ministry. They responded to God's graciousness. They responded to God's faithfulness, to his blessings by offering, by giving back to God and giving back to his ministry. Now, let's remember about these people as we keep this in mind for the entire chapter, chapter 7. These people have already given lavishly two times. First time, they gave for the the, uh, golden calf. Not a good offering, but they did give of their stuff. They gave of their material possessions. Now remember, the golden calf is then boiled down and they're made to drink it, but they gave. And then after that, in Exodus, they're going to give lavishly 
to the tabernacle. In fact, do you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 35? Exodus chapter 35, down in verses 5 and 7. You're you're going to notice that that Moses is going to talk here, and he's going to tell the individuals, the, the children of Israel, to stop giving. And it's chapter 36, not chapter 35. Uh, Moses, in verse, verse 6, he's going to look and say uh, that the, Moses gave the commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, let neither man nor woman make any more for the offering of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it, and too much. These people had been giving. They had been giving a bunch, and it was costing them, but they were giving back to God. Why? Because God was blessing them, because as they were righteous before God, they wanted to give back to God. Now, once again, they're going to give. Numbers chapter 7 is them going to be giving within a year to a year and a half. It's more, it's more close to a, like 13 months. They're going to give lavishly again. It reminds me of David. It reminds me, remember at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 24, David is going to say, Aruna wants to give him the threshing floor after David unwisely did the census and after the, the, the plague that occurred and all the, the consequences of his sin, David says, I need to erect an altar. And he wants to do it on the threshing floor of Aruna, uh, the Jebusite. And Aruna says, I'll give it to you. I can't. And David says, absolutely not. He says, I am not going to offer to God something that costs me nothing. He understood that giving to God was costly. He understood that giving to God meant that it it needed to be sacrificial for him. And I think about that in relationship to these, these Jews. Yes, God provided great plunder for them when they came out of Egypt. But they've given, and they've given, and they were generations, 10 generations of slaves at least. They did not amass uh, fortunes of wealth. They didn't have huge amounts. But what they did have, they were giving back to God. They were, they were giving back to him. They showed their value of God to him through their giving. They said, God, we value you more than the treasure, than the gold, than the, the plunder that we've received out of Egypt. We value your institution, the tabernacle, much more highly than we do our own possessions. And so we will give sacrificially back to you. And so the individuals, they gave, they gave to God. Now, what were these givers like? Who, who is it that was giving and what happens here? Verse 2 highlights that these individuals were the same princes or the same individuals who were used that aided in the census. Numbers chapter 2 highlights their names. You're going to see their names come up again throughout this passage. And they're identical, every single one of them, to the same individuals back there. And it's caused, actually, some people to, to speculate and say, oh, is this a, like a pay-to-play? Like these individuals gave this to Moses and gave this to Aaron in the tabernacle so that they could gain favor with, with Moses. So by giving more money, then Moses said, yeah, we're going to use you guys for the census, and we're going to put you in authority. I truly believe that if that were the case, God would not have accepted those offerings. 
fact, Moses is going to wrestle with that in a second. Look, look what happens. Moses, like Moses, represents the people before God. These leaders that we read, they're going to be a representation of their tribe to Moses and to God. So these individuals represent the tribe. Thus, all of Israel is represented in the giving and the offering. No one is excluded. No tribe is excluded. No tribe is seen as better or worse. They are all doing this equally. The princes bring these gifts. And when they bring these first gifts, they're going to then return. God knows how much gifts, how, many, how much offering they have to bring, what they're planning to bring. And God is going to schedule them out on a daily basis. So for 13 days straight, there is going to be this perpetual parade of giving and offering to God. And the individuals are going to come. Now, round one occurs in verses two to nine. As we look in verses two to nine, their offering, verse three says this. And I'll go back to Numbers chapter seven because that will help me to read the right passage. But in Numbers chapter seven, you're gonna see that the offering that they bring is going to be before the Lord and before the tabernacle. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then Deuteronomy. There we go. All right, Numbers chapter 7, verse 3. It says, And they brought their offering before the Lord. So the first thing they do is they're bringing it to the Lord, but also look at the end. They bring it before the tabernacle. So their offering that they're bringing was to God through the institution that he had established. They gave through God's program, through God's institution at this point of the tabernacle. We as a church, we're not a, we're not the, a tabernacle. We are not the, the same. We are not Israel now. The church is a different program, but the church is God's institution through which we worship him, through which we give. This is to be the, the program, and it is the program. The local church is the program, the institution in which God has established for this day and age. Pastors going through that in our foundation study. As you start to start to see, the local church is ultimately important for God. And so the individuals here, they're going to give before the Lord, and they're going to give this as a unified offering. All of the tribes, all of the princes take equal part in this, in this uh, offering. It's almost though as if, look at, look at verse 4 and 5. They bring it... Why does God have to say in verse, the Lord spake to Moses saying, take it of them. Moses was either the most unusual leader because I don't know of any pastor, I don't know of any leader who somebody's going to bring in this, this offering and say, here you go. I mean, granted, there's always those weird cases. But it's like, why, thank you. Yes, great, let's put it in the offering plate. Moses is looking and God says, accept the offering. Possibly because Moses is wondering, why are you bringing this to us? What is, maybe he's, maybe he's a little skeptical. We don't know. We don't want to read too much into scripture, but we do know that God said, accept it. Moses is told, accept the offering. And then the offering is given a purpose. Look in verse five. Take it of them that they may be to do the service or the work of the tabernacle of the congregation. What did they bring? They brought oxen. They brought carts. Wait, I thought the Levites, we just read that the Levites were supposed to do the work, the service of the congregation, uh, the tabernacle. Why are we now accepting oxen and carts as an offering to the people? Because they needed them. God's going to give them and they are his to give. Notice what he says. He said, I want you to take them in verse five, and you shall give them unto the Levites to every man according to his service. 
So he looks and he says, this gift that has been given to me, I am going to give it to the Levites. And he can do that because it is his, it is his gift that has been given to him. But notice in this little section here, the administration and the, the partnership principles that arise. The people give, God accepts, and he's going to budget what has been given. He's going to be wise with it. Notice, notice what happens. He says, and to Gershon, uh, two wagons, verse 7. He says, Moses took the wagons and he gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service. So he says to the, the, the clan of Gershon, here you go. Here's, uh, here's two wagons for you. Here's four oxen that you can do what with? You can carry the, the curtains, the hangings. They can all be put in them. And the wagons were probably a covered wagon, most believe, so that they could cover up, protect uh, the holiness of the, the items, the sacredness of them. Then the next verse talks about to, the, to Merari, you're going to get four wagons and eight oxen to do the, unto the sons of Merari according unto their service. Why did they get more? Because if you think about what they're carrying... They're carrying the boards, the beams, the posts. They're carrying the heavier items. So they get more carts, more oxen. And the, the, the offering that was given to God has been budgeted, disseminated accordingly as there was need in the ministry. And so they, they take that. And then what happens to Koath? Nothing. They don't get any. Do you remember why? Look what the verse says. But unto the sons of Kohath he gave none, because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear the, the weight upon their shoulders. Remember all the poles and everything that was put on? The sons of Kohath were supposed to carry the sacred items upon their shoulders. In fact, you remember there's one time when someone does this opposite. Someone decides to put the sacred items, one of the sacred items in particular, on a cart pulled by oxen. David, do you remember when he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant, starting to bring it to Jerusalem? They put it on a cart with oxen, and what happens? They lose balance, and Uzzah steps in to balance it, and what happens to him? He dies. And David was frustrated, but he did not obey. And even here, we have that little reminder of this is how God said they were to be carried. Just a quick reminder of the importance of the obedience to God, even in the small details of life, following what God has said to do. Now Moses is going to direct Ithamar to oversee. You see this beautiful picture of giving and partnership and helping and administration all within the financial realm of this offering being given. Just some really interesting perspectives. So the tribe, the tribes as a whole, give to the Levites to help with the transportation of the tabernacle. Therefore, it's able to be said, and, and every commentary I read makes this exact same point, that all the tribes had a part in the moving of the tabernacle through partnership in ministry with the Levites. By their giving, they aided in the work of the ministry and the work of the sacrificial system to be done because they gave of their finances. They gave of what costed them something precious. And so you, you see that something happens here. You finish in verse 9, and you're like, okay, we're done. They gave this wonderful offering to help with the moving of the tabernacle. Nope. In fact, it's like the Energizer Bunny. When you read through this passage, the next 80 verses, 78 verses, 
you're going to feel like it's still going and going and going. You remember that commercial where the Energizer Bunny is just going and going and going and going. The same thing is going to happen with the giving over these next days. For the next 12 days, there's going to be this perpetual giving by the children of Israel. Now look at the gifts. Verses 10 to 83, it's been said that this is the most, and it is, the most repetitive, and because of that, one of the most consequently overlooked, ignored passages in the Old Testament. In fact, what's interesting about this passage as a whole is if you take Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the Bible, although it's technically not a chapter, it's a, it's a psalm. The psalms are all their individual. They don't build one off of another. They are an individual entity. But this passage is the second longest chapter, if you count Psalm 119, the second longest chapter in the Bible. It's a, long, it's a long chapter. There's a lot to do here. And it has this continual theme that goes on and on and on. And so why is there so much repetition? In fact, when you read through the passage, you're going to see that verse after verse, outside of the name of the individual and the tribe they're from, the name of the prince and the tribe they're from, everything is identical. Every single time a tribe comes, it is identical. The exact same wording in English and in the Hebrew. There is repetition. Why? The author wanted this cumulative effect that's going to result from reading the account, from hearing this identical offering 12 times. I'd encourage you, try it. I don't even care if you, if you want to stop right now and come back and listen more. And go listen to, we're not going to read all of these verses. Find an audio and listen to it and really listen to it. Or take the time to read it. Read it out loud and listen to the repetition. Don't check out on the repetition. Don't act like, uh, for some of you, you know Ben Stein in the, the movie Ferris Bueller. And it's, it's like become this classic statement where it's like, Bueller, Bueller. And I feel like sometimes when we read passages like this, we hear it like that, or we read it like that, or we read it like Charlie Brown's teacher, where it's and they brought offerings to the Lord, and there was a burnt offering, and there was a sin offering, and there was a peace offering. Read it with excitement, understanding this is the word of God that is profitable for us. Listen to somebody read it. This repetition showed that each tribe has this equal stake in the support of the sacrificial ministry of the tabernacle. Everybody was to do their part. It was their responsibility. No tribe had a monopoly on the responsibility. It wasn't the larger tribes. They had to bear the weight and there was tribes that were unnecessary. No, every single tribe was to support the tabernacle was to support the ministry of the Levites and the priests, and each of them gave lavishly to it. A good teacher repeats what is important. They repeat that concept over and over. You do it as parents. Why do we, you feel like you say the same thing over and over? Why? Because you want your child to understand the concept. So if we look and say, well, we don't know why they just repeat. No, they repeated because there's a concept here in Numbers chapter 7 that is extremely important for us to grasp. It is a biblical theological concept. 
And so the repetitiveness is trying to drive that point home. What do these gifts look like? Rounds, the gifts of giving, rounds 2 through 13, verses 10 to 83. What do they look like? This offering was orderly. Remember, God says, verse 10, And the princes offered uh, dedication to the altar. In the day that it was anointed, even the princes offered their offering before the Lord. And the Lord said, They shall offer, verse 11, their offering, each prince on his day for the dedicating of the altar. And they take the same the same pattern of giving that was when they established when God said, you're going to put this tribe here and this tribe here. And it starts with Judah on the east and works all the way around and finishes with Naphtali uh, on the north side. So there's that same uh, direction and orderliness that was given earlier so that the individuals as they're coming, when you start seeing the amount of stuff that is animals that are brought, if all 12 tribes brought all their animals at the exact same time to this 12-foot opening of the tabernacle, it's going to be a sheer herd mess. It's going to be chaotic. And God says, no, we're going to do this with order. We're going to do it. So God directs them. The offering was multifaceted. It wasn't just, okay, they came and dropped a dollar bill in the plate. There, there, there were many facets that were given. Let's look at them quickly. The first one are these sacred utensils. Notice in verses 13 and 14, we're just going to look at Judah's because you can take Judah's and it's the repetitive, it's the same exact thing all other 11 times. Verses, verses 13 and 14, it says, And so Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver charger, the weight of 130 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And so what is that silver charger? It's a dish or a plate. It weighed about three and a quarter pounds when you do the shekels to ounces to pounds ratio. So a three and a quarter pound, if you took the the price of silver as it is today on Friday when I'm recording, the price of silver, you look at the three quarters of a pound, it's a roughly $1,500 silver plate. That's a a pretty expensive plate and there's going to be 12 of these. And then there's going to be this silver bowl that, he, that he's going to give on behalf of the tribe of Judah. This silver bowl is going to weigh 70 shekels. It's about one and three quarters pounds and weighs, it would cost roughly about $800. Now, if you took the gold price and you take the next item, the gold spoon or the pan, depending on what your translation, it may not be a spoon like we think of a spoon, but uh, more like a ladle or maybe uh, something to spoon out the blood. It was 10 shekel weight. It was about four ounces. That's about a $7,800 spoon. I wouldn't mind having a $7,800 spoon. I know probably some of you wouldn't either. But look at, look at the cost of that. That's, that's a weighty, that's an expensive offering. It was costly. And they give that to God. Now, that's not all they give. They give these sacred utensils. Every single tribe is going to give the exact same thing. But then they're also going to bring these sacrifices and offerings to God. There's going to be a number of different offerings that you're going to see. You're going to see the grain offering, the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, or the peace offering, the sin offering. All of these are going to be highlighted. Look in verse 15. It's going to talk about the grain offering first. Um, and you don't, you don't see that in verse 15. You see that actually occurring in uh, the end of verse 13. It says that both of them were filled with fine flour mingled with oil for the meat offering. The meat offering is another name for the grain offering. The grain offering, as they were bringing these utensils, they weren't even empty. 
they were filled with an offering, the grain offering to God. They were filled with fine, fine flour that was mixed with oil. There was the incense on the golden spoon. All of these part of the grain or the, the meat offering. And if you look through Leviticus 2 and Leviticus 6 and you read about those, you can do that in further study. I'll give you all those passages on here so that you can go back into Leviticus uh, to study. And if you want a really good book on the, the study of Leviticus, there's a book called Holiness Unto the Lord. It's by Alan Ross. Great study in the book of Leviticus. Very, uh, it's technical and yet it's easy to read and does a really good job. So I'd encourage that to you if you're studying through Leviticus. But the grain offering was an expression of gratitude by the person and commitment to the Lord. So as they're bringing this sacrifice, this offering to God, they're giving and they're, they're, they're saying, thank you, God. They're saying, we're committed to you, God. There was an expression of gratitude that was given. Then the next offering that's given, so that's given with the, the, the utensils. The next offering that's given, we see here, found in verse 15, one young bullock, one ram, one lamb of the first year for a burnt offering. So now there's going to be this burnt offering. And the burnt offering is a reminder. No one is able to approach God, as we talked earlier, without that substitutionary sacrifice. The burnt offerings were going to be completely consumed. They were all for God. The Lord accepted them with great pleasure. They, they were given by those individuals who were coming to him through the atonement of the shed blood of these animals and having this ability to enter in. What it highlights is the relationship that the people have with God, that they are able to enter into God's presence, even in that short little bit with the altar because of the shed blood of a sacrifice. And so they offer this burnt offering, a costly one. Remember, meat is just as expensive as some of these silver items and gold items. It was costly. It cost them livelihood. It cost them potential milk. It cost them clothing. A lot of things were, when this was consumed completely to God, They benefited nothing from a burnt offering. It was a costly sacrifice, but they valued God. Then after the burnt offering, it goes on. It says, one kid of the goats for a sin offering. The sin offering or the trespass offering or sometimes called the purification offering, depending again on your translation and the passages that are used. This offering, as it was brought, all sin had to be dealt with, known and unknown sin. And when sin was committed, Sin needed to be forgiven. It's very similar to what we, we see today. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, God's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's this beautiful picture that even though I have a relationship with God, my fellowship can be distorted or separated because I'm growing away from God in my sin. So the sin offering was one that as it was brought the the person would know that their sin was forgiven, that their fellowship was restored because of this offering, because of the shed blood of the offering. God in this, this offering, he restores the fellowship with the sinner who constantly or is appealing to him for forgiveness on the basis of the purifying blood of that sacrifice. So think about these these sacrifices. They're they're special. They are precious to the individuals who are giving them. It is reminding them. 
It is them looking forward and saying, my sins are forgiven. I am in good, good stead with God. My fellowship is restored with him. And then the last offering that's given is called the peace offering or the, the fellowship offering. Notice uh, verse 15. Verse 15, it talks about, one, uh, not verse 15, 17, excuse me. And for the sacrifice of a peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five he goats, five lambs of the first year. Now this was more than what is required in Leviticus. This was an excessive peace offering. But they were so exuberant to give back to God. The peace offering was the most joyous and celebratory of all of the rituals. This was the one they, they would take the time to eat as a community. Sometimes with their family members, with the, some of the Levites, they would have the opportunity to eat in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because they were at peace with him. There was a benefit of being at peace with God, that they could have that communion with him, that they could eat this together. In fact, Leviticus reminds them if somebody is going to eat with them and they're not holy and they're not clean, that there is going to be consequences, that they are to make sure that they are righteous and holy before they come to this time to eat at the table, to, to fellowship and to commune with God. Lots of, lots of pictures that point forward to some other things, but we don't have time to dive into all of that. But it's really interesting as you look at the progression of these offerings. There was a gratitude. There was a consecration because through the blood of these substitutionary sacrifices, a believer could have communion and fellowship with God because they were at peace with him. The individual sins, the tribe sins, it was the picture of them being forgiven because of the shed blood and that they were able to be at peace with the holy God. No wonder this altar was so sacred. No wonder it was such a special place as people understood that this was the place where I could visibly understand and see that my sins are forgiven that I am in a right relationship with God. My fellowship and my communion has been restored because of my sin and my trespasses. And I am at peace with the holy God of this universe. The people loved the altar. And that is why at the dedication of this altar, they lavishly give back to God because they see how God has blessed them and what God has done for them. We cannot give God's gifts. We can't outgive what he has so graciously blessed us with. And these people understood that. They gave and they gave and they gave. Now, for those of you who have that accountant mind, you've probably started doing the tally sheets already, trying to figure out how much was given, what was the total amounts that were given, and all that. The grand totals here in the Bible. Verses 84 to 88, after the 12... Uh, dedications, the 12 offerings made on these 12 consecutive days. All the offerings are identical. All of uh, the, uh, the gifts are, are the same. 84 verses 84 to 88 give you the grand total. You can go right through and you can see that it was in, they were given these 12 spoons and the 12 bowls and the, the 12 plates and how much they each weighed in verse 85. 
And then the, the spoons were 12, verse 86, and how many offerings were given with the burnt offerings and, and all that. And they give you this, this grand total in the, in the passage here. And you look and go, okay, great. And if you have the accountant's mind, if you're like my wife who loves spreadsheets, I despise spreadsheets, I know they're necessary, but I look at them, I'm like, yeah, what? who cares? I, I know we have to care. I don't think like a spreadsheet guy. That's just me. But if you think like that, you're loving this because it all tallies up. Everything comes down. The pennies all all work out in the end. And you're like, okay, great. For some of us, and probably for most of us, even if you're the accountant type, you're looking and saying, so what? And that's the danger of this passage. We look at this passage and go, great. We have a big biblical Excel spreadsheet. We have a ledger of what everybody gave. And, and there, is, there is a dynamic that this is a ledger book. But what was the purpose of the ledger book? What was, the, what was it all about? Verse 89 seems really out of place, but it doesn't. It answers the so what. Look what happens. The real grand total of all of this is found in verse 89. And when Moses was gone into the tabernacle of the congregation to speak with him, talking about God, Then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat, and that was upon the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spake to him. We have to understand, Exodus chapter 25, look what it says there. It says, and there, this this was given to Moses by God when Moses is going to get ready to start the tabernacle. He says, when you finish the tabernacle, what's he say? When it is all done. And there I will meet with you. He's talking about the Ark of the Covenant specifically in Exodus 25. There I will meet with you. And I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, of all the things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. He looks at Moses and he says, when it's all done, when everything is set and everything is right, I will meet with you. And I will teach you. And I will tell you what the people need to know. And so we have at the end of Numbers chapter 7, the fulfillment of Exodus chapter 25, where God comes and he communes. He fellowships. He talks and teaches with Moses. And it's interesting because it's a one-time, it's a one-time act. When the tabernacle was complete, the people were righteously responding to God through separation from sin, through consecration to God, and they were, they were responding to God's blessings by, by their righteous giving and their offerings to him. All of Numbers 5 and 6, that all culminates in what's going to start happening here. God comes and he meets with, he fellowships, he communes with Moses as the representative of the people. This was not just a, hey, good job, Moses, just me and you are going to have a little chat. This was God coming to Moses as representative of the people and saying, I am fellowshipping with you. I am communing with you. I am present. I am here. And the verbs that are used in this verse, they don't say that this is a, a continual thing where Moses could just walk into the holy place and see the tabernacle and hear God speaking from the tabernacle. This happened once. This was a one time. God communed and spoke with Moses, but it was this beautiful picture that God was there speaking to Moses as a representative of the people. God communed. God fellowshiped with them. And I look at number seven. 
and I look at the whole of the passage, and we start looking and trying to figure out what is this passage about, if we truly, genuinely look at it with open eyes, not with wanting to look and say, I don't want to hear. I just want to get through the passage. If we look and say, what, is, what was repeated? What was this all about? It was a response by the people of God because of God's graciousness. What did they do? They gave. What do we learn about giving from this passage? As we just look through, look at, look at some of the principles that are so, I believe, blatantly clear. And I hope you've seen them as you read through the rest of the passage and as you think about it. Look at, look at what we learn about giving. Giving is a celebration of gratitude. There is a joyous dynamic to the, to the tribes, to the nation. They are giving with excitement. They are coming because of God's blessing. The peace offering was a joyous celebration. That was the culmination every day for 12 days. This communal feast, this excitement, it was a celebration of gratitude. There was a cheerfulness in their giving. There wasn't this, oh, I got to give. Oh, woe is me. I'm not going to be able... There was a cheerfulness. There was a joy. The giving is noticed by God. I don't think we can get away from that. How many times is it repeated over and over and over and over again? God noticed, and God noticed specifically what they gave. He was not caught off guard. In fact, Moses knows. He records it down. It was noticed by God, and our giving is noticed by God. God wants that. He, and giving, it's costly. We've highlighted that a number of times through here. The giving is costly for these individuals and giving is costly for us. And what we value, we show. And how we give. Do we truly value God and how we give? Or do we have some other gods before him? Remember that first commandment as Moses walks in and sees the ark. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. I cannot serve God and money, Jesus talks about. There is that battle that we face when it comes to giving that it's costly. And what's interesting about this passage, yes, we can give our time. Yes, we can give our service. But this entire passage is talking about the giving of monetary funds. And yes, I know we as pastors don't like to talk about it because, you know, maybe someone tuned in for the very first time and they're going to say, oh my goodness, that's all they talk about. This is just the next chapter as we go through the book of Numbers. But giving is costly. Giving is an act of worship. It was unto the Lord, and it was centered around God's institution. It was a genuine act of worship to give back to God. As God blesses us, we give back to him. God, or giving, excuse me, is visibly showing the act of how much we value God. I already highlighted that, already talked about it. Giving to the Lord is going to be to the Lord and his institution. I think that's a very important under, dynamic to understand. We are to be giving to our local church. And I'm not saying that because I'm a pastor here, but I believe it is biblical. As you look through the scriptures, you give to God's institution. We give to the Lord. And when we give to the Lord, we trust that God's representatives, we trust that the established program that God has done, they will budget, they will partner, they will act accordingly. And I'm thankful for the men that God have established in our ministry who do that, who look at the finances and budget correctly and wisely. Even in a difficult time, they do that. Look at what else. Giving must be used appropriately to meet ministry needs. 
We can't just have a pet ministry and say, well, I just always want to be dumping thousands here, but this ministry is really thriving, but we're not, we're not going to. They did, Moses looked and God looked and said, give more to this clan than this clan because their ministry needs were greater. It's not, it wasn't, there was no equality in saying, well, we need to just give the same to everybody. There was a dynamic that says, here's some needs here, ministry. And they gave, they gave appropriately to meet those ministry needs. Giving partners us in ministry with other ministers of the gospel. I think this is an awesome sacrificial Sunday passage. I think it's a great passage to talk about with giving. Why? Because as we give, we're partnering. As the people gave, they partnered with the Levites. They partnered with the sacrificial ministry of the tabernacle. They came together and they all had a part. The same is true when our money goes to missions, when our money goes to help the ministries here, when our monies go to, to pay for, for staff salaries, you are helping to partner with the gospel. There's no way around that. That's what, that's what happens in this passage. Giving enhances our fellowship and our communion with God. There is an excitement to give back to the ones we love. I remember as a kid, the first time that my parents would always buy pizza, and I remember one time finally saving up the money and then buying pizza for the family for the first time. Why did I want to do that? Because my parents had done it so much for me. I thought it would be really cool to be able to give back to them and to, to enjoy that. Now, the funny thing was I bought the pizza. I walked down and I carried it on an angle and it all slid down my arm. And it was like the worst, the worst pizza ever. But there was a special fellowship, a time with my family that I was able to give back to them because they'd given to me. And it was a special time. We get to give back to God. And giving is held in high regard by God. Longest chapter in the Bible outside of Psalm 119. And it's all about giving. It is a theological principle through scriptures. We get leery of talking about it because we want to say, well, there's so much more than, than just giving money. I understand that. I'm not here to say today we need to have a pledge drive or anything. I'm not here to say we need to take a special offering. I'm just saying as I look at this, this passage, the next one in the book is we're unfolding it. God's speaking to me and saying, hey, Art, how's your giving? Are you sacrificially giving to me? Are you being gracious in your gifts? Or are you holding back? I hold giving in high regard. He, it's a lot of verses talking about God's giving. And God, or giving to support God's program is for everybody. There's no, there's no exceptions. It's for all the tribe. It's for all the community. It's for all of us. We give to the Lord. We don't give to a budget. We don't say, oh, the budget, we're making budgets, so I don't give. Oh, I wasn't at church, so I'm just not going to give this week. We don't pay a ticket price to come in. We give to support God's ministry, and it is for all of us to be doing. We are all to take part. And the children of Israel understood that. They understood that it was important for them to do. But lest, lest we think that simply as we wrap up here, that this is just something for you know, God's people in the Old Testament. God desires all his people to respond to his faithfulness through our willful giving, not only of ourselves, but of our abundance. Go with me as we finish. We're going to read one passage of scripture. It's in, it's portions of it. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter eight and portions of eight and portions of nine. As we finish there, God does want us to be willfully giving of our abundance. 
And I want you to see that this is a New Testament concept as well. This is not just Old Testament tabernacle. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he says, Moreover, brethren, I want you to know the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. Verse 2, how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto riches of their liberality. He says, even though Macedonia was in an extremely difficult and hard time, they were giving liberally to help to support partners in ministry, to help support other people. And he says, they did not this, verse 5, they did not this, not as we hoped, or they did this, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves. It was a consecrated life, just like we talked about, the consecrated individual, the ones who are giving themselves to God and experience God's blessings. What do they do? And they, uh, to us, by the will of God. So they gave even to us then. Verse 8, he says, I'm not going to speak to you, by commandment, but he says, by the occasionness of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love, for we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that you, you through his poverty, might be rich. We cannot give God. Look at the grace and the blessings that God has bestowed. Verse thirteen. He says, for I don't mean for you to be burdened, but by an equality, all of us doing our part, we shall have this time of abundance that he may supply their want, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that you may be equality, that we're all doing our parts together. Verse 15, Paul quotes out of Exodus, out of the wilderness wanderings. He says, as it is written, he had gathered much, had nothing uh, much, had nothing over, and he had gathered little, had no lack. He says God was taking care of his people then. He's going to take care of his people now. And then in verse, or chapter 9, verse 5, he picks up on the theme of this giving and this gracious giving. And giving as God has blessed us, we give back to him. He says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort you, brethren, that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, Whereof you had noticed before that same might be ready as a manner of bounty and not as covetousness, covetous. But this I say to you, he which sows sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which sows bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Let every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, every person, let him give, not grudgingly, it's a celebration. Not of necessity, it's an offering. For God loves a cheerful giver. God desires for us as his people to respond to his faithfulness, to his grace, to his blessings through willful giving of ourselves and of our abundance. A long chapter a repetitious one. But hopefully, we get the point. God desires our gifts. He loves our gifts. He expects our gifts. And he accepts our gifts. How are we doing as we think about our gifts to God? Lord, I pray that you would help me to be more caught up with you and value you more and I value all the things that I so dearly hold here on this earth. Lord, help me to treasure you and your house more than me and my house. 
For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. God bless.